Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Today's guest is Owen Lacour. Owen is many things, including the founder of MoveNat, which is a synthesis of his passion for physical competency with his love of movement in nature. More recently, Owen became a US national static breath hold record holder. In this conversation, we talk about what he describes as the challenges of hamster fitness and the movement poverty predicament. He also has some pretty good ideas for what he describes as human zoo countermeasures. We also nerd out on some of the benefits of practicing breath holding, increasing your CO2 tolerance, and basically how the hell he's able to hold his breath for over eight minutes. This episode of Curious Humans is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery, which is my flagship five-week bootcamp designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate greater agency over your internal state. The upcoming cohort is running this November, and applications are open until midnight on October 28th. My guess is that if this conversation with Owen resonates with you, then you'd probably be a really good fit for the upcoming cohort. We've had over 250 applications so far, and places will be limited. So if you're at all curious to join, you can find out more and apply at nsmastery.com. Okay, sit back, relax. Please enjoy this uninterrupted deep dive, pun not intended, conversation with Owen Lacour. All right, welcome Owen. Great to have you here. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. How are you feeling in three words? Composed, um, confident, optimistic. Hmm, nice. Well, I imagine this conversation will flow in many different themes, but one of the questions I found uh, usually leads to interesting places is, were you curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? I was, I think, um, yes, I was curious as a kid, for sure. Mm. I was not curious about science and things like that. I, I was not curious about the big explanations of the big things or simple things. Of uh, I was curious, especially about the uh, um, nature. I was mm. curious, but not again, not from a scientific standpoint of biology and you know, it's just needed to be in nature and to explore my environment, to explore, to explore places, to go to places. Mm. Very curious about that. Curious about what could be in the ground. Curious about history, the history of the place. If I would see an old building clearly made a long time ago, since I grew up in France, so you have a lot of those old stones. You grew up in Europe too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be very curious. I would want to know what what was this place used for? Who lived there? Mm. Um often curious about, you know, what was underground, thinking of what could I find? Is there treasure? Are there other special mm-hmm. stones? 
um, yeah, things mm. like I'm curious about insects or birds or animals, curious about whatever mm. I could discover spontaneously, not necessarily about the, the rational explanations of everything. Mm. Not mm. that I was dis- disinterested in that. Um, I was a lot, I was very curious about history. I read a lot of history books, mm. especially about, uh, conquest, um, the parrots flip, you know, um, buccaneers, like the whole, that I, I just literally, it's almost <laughs> like I studied it. It's like if it was a past life to me. Wow. Interesting. So, um, along those lines, are there any myths or stories or maybe kind of historical accounts that really resonated with you um in that in that in that era anything that stands out um i would love to be able to trace back the migration of my ancestors from Mm. scotland ireland uh welsh country so that's basically what I've discovered, not surprisingly, because so my lineage, I'm from Brittany. I'm right from the French Brittany. So that whole thing about like your French is a myth hmm. um, because my grandparents grew up speaking Britain. And uh, I was always reminded, you're Britain, you're Britain. And so uh, Breton, Breton. And anyway, so not surprisingly, I discovered by that all my DNA is from those British, Irish, Scottish islands, and none is from France. Mm. And I've always wondered what, how did that migration happen, or you know what it was like back in the mm. days, in those times, in those places, in the early times of Brittany. Mm. So it's very specific to to my to my own cultural lineage. Hmm. Beautiful. We, uh, we have... and, and obviously, um, by extension, the, the whole journey of mankind since its mm-hmm. beginnings would be. It's always it's always been a bit of a fantasy to travel back in time, mm. to be able to go back at any point in time in different cultures, mm. uh, and even before culture was a thing when we we were just really very very wild very close to nature you mm. like the original hominids mm. wow well that feels like a theme that I, th- I think we'll probably pick up on um the other thing that i i read was that i think when you were in your late teens you you joined a, you joined a group um practicing street running in the the bridges of paris and that sounds fun like i'd love to know a bit more about that how did that begin and what was that like well, you you have to imagine um, something there wild. Be- why? Why? Because today a lot is done in a more organized fashion and um, following trends, or with the aim of posting right away whatever that is that it is that you do that you've experienced on social media. So you're always going to have a phone with you. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to not only film what you're doing what you're experiencing you're also being able to share it right away at any time 24 7 so back mm-hmm. then so i'm almost 51 i'll be 51 in uh, early september mm-hmm. we're talking about my my 20s 
Um, so we are in the very early 90s in Paris. The internet is a thing, but still confidential. There's no smartphones yet. Um, and certainly not um, like phones that w could record what you do. So what I did back then was not for social media. It, it was, it, it feels that today, before you do anything, you're thinking of what it's going to look like on social media. Mm -hmm. Whereas back then, you were anticipating the adventure for what it would be, for mm -hmm. what you thought it was going to be or not knowing what it would be. And certainly not being able to share it with anybody else, but whoever was there. And then maybe you could tell the story to people who may or not, may believe you or not, because they aren't there and you don't have a proof. So hmm. what were these crazy things we were doing? Some uh, were dangerous. Um, it was a whole lifestyle, basically. We kind of... We, when I say we, it was a confidential group of people. Uh, confidential because, again, back then, no internet. So it's not like, okay, let's connect on a forum or someplace and then follow each other. And that's how we get to know each other even before we meet in person. Mm. You had to meet in person. Then you maybe you would become part of this small confidential group. You yeah. had to have a very unique mindset of wanting to live a life that was extraordinary in the sense of not ordinary, just not ordinary at all, not mm. following conventions. So what did that imply? Well, that would imply um, about everything that has now become a biohack or a specific niche or trend on social media such as fasting. We can call it intermittent fasting because obviously you're not going to fast forever, so it's just fasting. There's a point where you stop, or it's, it's inherently intermittent, people. <laughs> um, so fasting, um, what's called grounding today or earthing. Okay, well, so we would do all our trainings barefoot. So that was in Paris, but... Even in Paris, you can climb trees, you can go on. It's not everywhere it's concrete, right? Uh, but it didn't matter that you were on artificial surfaces or natural ones. Uh, the point was you're barefoot. Barefoot because you can feel everything with much more accuracy. Your footing is more precise. Yes, mm -hmm. you can cut yourself or poke your feet on, on sharp things. But that was also the point of, well, if you don't pay attention, you're going to hurt your feet. If you're always very attentive, very alert and responsive, then you won't. And that's it. Hmm. So uh, that was part of it. Um, what would be called today parkour, move nat, natural movement, that was part of it. We would climb scaffoldings and go very high, like uh, on top of tall, tall buildings. Like we climbed, I climbed uh, Notre Dame like that, uh, hmm. only to go on top and balance on top of the scaffoldings at really really high elevated heights and um no harness obviously barefoot at night <laughs> and sometimes in a freezing cold no wow. shoes wow i see metal bars you know like crazy things like that jump off bridges 
into mm. the river, the Seine, uh, Seine you know, River in Paris, mm. in in the winter. So cold plunge, cold plunging, tons of cold plunging, tons of fasting, <laughs> all barefoot training, all kind of uh, practical uh, movements, uh, climbing, balancing, moving all fours, um, you know, some kind of Thai boxing like uh, training in the in the uh, underground or mm. on top of a bridge. Crazy things like that. Things that you make a mistake, you you could die. Mm. And doing like <laughs> uh, sneaking in the the Louvre Museum mm. at night. Uh, like forbidden things, so n not nothing. Uh, it was always healthy things, but just rebel, rebel kind of things, uh, mm -hmm. forbidden mm -hmm. things. Um, what else? Eating a certain way, uh, non-processed food, uh, a lot of breathing exercise, mm -hmm. some breath holding, uh, sleeping on. Sleeping on very thin, like a folded folded blankets, basically. So a form of ascetism. Mm. No, no consuming, no watching TV, uh, listening to the news only very discriminately, very critically. To be like, okay, that's what they say is the truth. It's actually not the truth. That's what they want you to believe, which today has proven to be a fact and mm. that now millions and millions of people have realized oh okay the establishment is really lying to us most of the time now a lot of people understand that back in the days we're talking about 30 years ago very few people thought like that mm. and very few people had a lifestyle that was outside of the norms um, yeah so yeah so you imagine all these what have become for the most part individual you know single practice trends like uh barefoot movement or breathing practice or parkour or fasting or the, it was the whole thing we did it all facing mm. your fears mm. um a lot of things like that mm. lots of lots of crazy stories sleeping in a in a zoo at night um, you know, getting inside buildings where we're not supposed to be mm. doing things in places, things you're not supposed to do in places you're not supposed to be at times you're not supposed to be mm. things like that. Extraordinary, not ordinary. Mm. Don't, don't be normal. Normal is, is weakening you. Normalcy is a silent killer. Hmm. Yeah. There's this wonderfully, um, like healthy, rebellious streak that I kind of sensed as I was reading about your work. And, and I kind of really sensed that from hearing you share that story. Um, yes. and what, what, one of the, uh, when I was kind of preparing for this conversation, I watched a talk that you gave at NASA. And one of the phrases that you used was this idea of like the challenges of hamster fitness. And I think you used the phrase <laughs> movement, poverty, predicament. And I think that's yeah. so so important and it is still i think very much applicable to the mainstream right now could you speak to a little bit about what you mean by by those phrases um so movement poverty predicament uh we are collectively of course 
we're collectively living a very a movement poor life. There's mm. almost no movement in our life. There's a lack of movement in all sense of the idea of, of deficiency, which is in terms of uh, frequency of movement, mm. in terms of variety of movement, and in terms of intensity of movement as well, mm. and variability of movement. All these are, they, they may sound like the same when you don't pay attention, but it's all, it's all different. So let's imagine a typical typical lifestyle so you wake up and what do you do uh you may go to the shower you're gonna stand in the shower take a shower but you're gonna sit to have breakfast before you go to work or if you work from home in any case you're gonna sit a lot during the day and when you're not sitting it's very likely that you're just going to be standing then you it's the end of the day you're tired you go back home if you were already home Still tired. You're like, okay, now I deserve to relax. You've been sitting all day, all right, but you feel tired. How do you relax? Well, you sit more. You sit in a more comfortable, like on a couch, something softer where you can, you know, lay down, lay back. And mm. So where's the movement? What What is the movement that you do, that most people do on a daily basis? Let's talk about what they do movement-wise before we talk about what they don't do. Sitting, standing up, that's a movement. Walking a few steps, standing for some time, mm-hmm. sitting back, you know, down on whatever seat. Maybe you'll have a few stairs along the way, along the day, and that's going to be it. Well, okay, you drop your glasses or you, you drop something. You're going to bend over and pick it up. That's it. That's Monday, that's Tuesday, that's Wednesday, that's every day. And probably on weekends, well, maybe on weekend, you're going to be like, well, I need to do some activity, some physical activity. So maybe you have a sport. Maybe you go on a jog. That's cool. I have a little jogging. Maybe you'll do some stretching, some yoga. That's cool. Um, maybe you'll go to the gym. At the gym, it's very likely that you'll be sitting on exercise machines so that you can isolate your legs. So you sit when you work your legs, you sit when you work your arms, you sit when you work whatever other body parts. Mm. You isolate your movements like that. You isolate your body parts as if you were made of parts. They don't work together. It's supposed to work just one by one. Make sure that you Mm. target them all. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so before people think that I'm judgmental of physical activity, I'm not. I think it's much better than just, again, only sitting and standing and walking a few steps. But you can't help but observe, when you observe movement behavior, the typical movement behavior of a typical person that's living the typical modern lifestyle, that's pretty much it when it comes to movement. So even if you're going to, say, go to the gym three times a week, It's still, and, and out of those, uh, let's say, one-hour sessions, so you have three times one-hour session of some exercise at a gym in mm-hmm. a week. What's the, pers- what's the percentage of physical activity this represents um, out of your complete, you know, wake time? Let's say your wake time is 12 hours a day. 
hopefully at least probably like 14, 16 hours a day of wake time. And you multiply that, that by, by seven. And then you, you take away from that those three hours of physical activity that at least you have the discipline to do. And then you take out of that uh, the pauses that you make, sitting, relaxing, just you know, not exercising. And then you realize that the percentage of a physical activity is really, really, really low. That's not even 10%, not even 5%. That's probably just 1%. percent mm-hmm. So think about it. The bulk, 90 99% of your wake time is still spent sitting or standing or just walking a few steps on flat, linear surfaces, predictable surfaces mm-hmm. that, that don't really challenge you. All right. So you are far, 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 far from anything wealthy in, in the form of movement expression, mm-hmm. which is extremely important for your physiology, for your health, not just the health of your body, as people think, but also for the health of your nervous system and therefore mm-hmm. the health of your brain, because the mm-hmm. brain is part of the body. Yep. So the, the brain is very re- receptive to the activity of the rest of the body, because by the way, who is in charge of making you move? The brain. So when you exercise, basically the brain comes first. The brain is the one, the brain, the nervous system is the one that makes you move and that benefits through physiological activity of itself and the the whole rest of the body. So long Mm -hmm. story short, that one situation that uh, I've described is, is definitely what could be called and should be called movement poverty. It's a predicament. And a lot of people, most people suffer of it. Uh, and you want to compare that to what was our original universal movement behavior on a day-to-day basis. You would wake up rel- relatively quickly. You would be on your feet walking on uneven surfaces in nature. You would be walking a lot. You would be physically active, not all day, not not like working hard with your body all day, all the time, but frequently. And then there would be a lot of variety. You would be squatting down. You would be kneeling. You would be sitting on the ground, on the floor. You'd be probably lifting and carrying things, not necessarily very, um, very heavy, but uh, still. You would really employ your body in so many more diverse ways and that would keep you healthy so that would be that's what we recommend that's what i call natural movement the whole scope of uh movement and just look at kids the way they naturally move before they are instructed on what's proper movement or proper fitness exercise and things like that what what is it that they do well first off they move a lot they don't always move they take pauses they they relax too but they move a lot. They move at a diverse intensity. They have a great variety of movements. They walk on all fours. They balance. They jump. They climb. They hang. They jump. They land. They walk. They run. And they love to explore new environments where they can have fun doing new movements. Hmm. Right? So there's no boredom to that. There's no boredom to the body or to the mind. You're happy when you move a lot, when you move frequently, and when you move with that diversity and variability. That's not the case for most human beings today, modern human beings, adults. They don't move like that. And so then they wonder why they're depressed. Well, 
It may not have to do with what your mommy or daddy told you when you're a little kid. I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing that, okay? Trauma and things like that is totally real and it can really impact your adult life. But yeah. physiologically, we have a base, a foundation, and movement is one of those. Being in nature is one of those as well. Being mm -hmm. in the sun, being outside, being grounded, mm -hmm. and moving frequently with a variety of movements. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you for yeah elaborating on that um there's so many threads that are alive right now and i do want to i want to kind of get to talking about the breath and breath holding but before we go there um how do i phrase this question yeah so so let's let's imagine that there are, there's a bunch of people listening and they say they might have office jobs maybe they have kids they have busy lives and they they really resonate and agree with what you've just said um, and they have a desire to like rewild themselves and to become more resilient and to kind of build their capacity. How might you think about designing like a curriculum or, or a program to provide, I, I love the phrase, it was like human zoo countermeasures, which is great. And, and, and what are some of the core like movement protocols or um, movement snacks? It was another phrase. That yeah, used, well, this like, is why I created MoveNet. Mm -hmm. um, in um, what I, why I wrote a whole book, very detailed book about the concept of natural movement. Mm -hmm. so the way um, we're supposed to move is um, universally. It's uh, it's all these, these these skills. Well, they are just abilities before you turn them into skills. All right, but mm -hmm. uh, I look at kids and look at remember when you were a kid, all the movements you did. Well, that was the program capital. T H E the program that was the program the built-in program the instinctive program that gave you that drive to move all the time. Mm. Well, you want to get back to that, and you want to approach it um, with that element of playfulness, but also that element of um, the, the the mindset of efficiency. It's a little like uh, it's not a little; it's literally the same way you approach self-defense or martial arts. Okay, so when uh, you want to learn to fight, to defend yourself, I think the, the dog agrees. Yeah, um, there's a postman outside. Right. The, the dog's letting yeah. us know. <laughs> life. It's life. Yeah. <laughs> Unpredictable Feel in so many ways. Actually. Yeah. So when you uh, have a, you have an intention, you're not going to be like, okay, I want to learn to fight. Okay, I'm going to just get out, walk up the street or down the street, and I'm going to try to find some some guy who looks mean. I'm going to just, you know, start a fight. I'll go to a bar, start a fight. That's how I'm going to learn to fight. Doesn't make any sense. Um, typically, you're going to go to a dojo or some academy mm -hmm. where you're like, okay, I'm going to learn techniques. Don't you have some basic ability, uh, basic ability to defend yourself and so to fight? Yes, of course. I'm sure you can throw a punch. You can uh, or two. Uh, you can kick. Uh, you could wrestle a bit. You know, you're like okay, hey, I could defend myself. I could even bite. I could try to gouge somebody's eyes. Like if we have to, I don't mean to be mean, but if it's my life, I have to do it. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's legit. And you know that you have some basic ability, but does that mean that you're good at it? No, because you know that there are 
a number of principles and techniques that exist that have been mapped and that you could learn from a qualified instructor that is going to teach you, okay, that's the proper way to throw a punch. Also, you may not have to throw a punch. You may parry that way. You may also use open hands and you may also use your knees and elbows. And uh, this is how you protect your face. And uh, this is the kind of situation you could encounter. This is how to approach them, how to anticipate them. Typically, a fight is going to go to the ground. This is what you do when you're on the ground. Those are the basics, etc., etc. So, what is this about? Well, learning techniques so that you can really harness that energy that you have and that those basic abilities that you that you possess, like everybody else. Well, now apply this to all other abilities that we all possess. Anyone can jump and land. How far? How high? From what height? And with what kind of landing? Hmm. Well, that's a different story because it's going to depend on the movement efficiency that you've trained and acquired or not. And it's also going to depend on your physical conditioning and your tissues and your nervous system and all of that to be prepared so that hmm. you don't hurt yourself when you do those movements. Same goes with running. Same goes with climbing. You can run. Anybody can run a bit, not necessarily necessarily fast or for a long time and also not necessarily with a good technique some people are going to move their arms like crazy they're going to have you know their head moving forward and a rounded back and um heel striking really hard and doing long strides and basically horrible technique you can also learn to run with very efficient technique very light with good cadence good posture good breathing so this is what we teach, but this is what MoveNet teaches. Basically, the physical education that you may, you, you probably wish, I wish I had received that physical education when I was, mm. when I was a kid. Mm. And as a matter of fact, I know that nobody really received it ever anywhere. Mm. And so that's why we end up with uh, an overwhelming majority of grown-ups, grown-up population, not just in the U.S., but anywhere else. That's physically pretty much inept that they don't know how to operate their own body in any practical way or efficient yeah. way in the real world they're gonna yeah. try to move a piece of furniture and hurt their back right away mm. if they have to run on just like that they could not they would be out of breath within a minute etc 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 so is there like a martial art um kind of martial art for that well yeah it's called move now and I've created that based on my my childhood, the, the my uh, my lifelong experience of of doing this kind of practical movements in the real world, and mm -hmm. also based on my study of what existed before modern fitness, which is the history of physical education. That's the way people train for the most part. Mm. Mm. Um, and also, you were saying. Uh, in the beginning, so what if you have a desk job and uh, you have kids and well, guess what? Um, I have a desk job. <laughs> I work. I may be self-employed, and uh, yeah. I work from home. I, I spend a, a number of hours in front of you know sitting in front of a computer. Yeah. Uh, I have three kids. I I have a job, and though I created my own job, but uh, yeah. my point is, don't 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 think that um, just that guy who 
all he does is just be in nature mm-hmm. running around in the world yeah <laughs> with you know not a care in the world you know no not a real job no kids nobody to take care of no sure. just like anyone else so how do you how do you manage to, to practice your movement well you need to look at opportunities that are everywhere and you need also to allocate your time properly. So um, if you're going to really pay attention to how, how much time you spend on social media, is there likely it's at least two hours a day for most people, if not more? You'd be hard-pressed to say, hey, I cannot take any of that time for and dedicate it for my movement practice. It has to be social media, no matter what. I'm going to watch those videos. I'm going to read those posts mm. uh, because I never know enough about a healthy lifestyle. And while you're reading for all these hours about what's a healthy lifestyle, if you do, by the way, because there are so many other topics, are you practicing a healthy lifestyle? No, you're just learning more about whatever science or some of the tips that you've heard over and over and over because everybody's somehow parroting each other. But just take some of that time. Be radically radically honest with yourself. Be like, okay, I'm going to dedicate at least half of that time to my health practice, mm-hmm. be it movement, breathing, anything, mm-hmm. not just reading about it but actually practicing it because the proof is in the pudding and you got to make that pudding and you got to do it. <laughs> that's it. Like yeah. no, uh, there's no need to, uh, try to walk around the bush that way. Mm. So let's say, uh, you still want to look at that social media and you look at it with your, on your phone. Well, why don't you squat while you're doing that? A deep squat. Mm. Well, don't you kneel? Why don't you, uh, I don't know, hang, I don't know, like find a way, like if really you need to keep your eyes on some social media content, why don't you at least practice some movement or some position Mm. at the same time? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is great, and um, maybe I'll I'll use myself as an example because I think this this is definitely applicable. So, um, as I mentioned before we hit record, my wife and I have just moved here to Boulder recently, and we both have a desire to like, I think like you, like we kind of look at this, look at a screen for maybe three, four hours a day. We, we have jobs, we have work to do. Um, and we've been trying to find ways of bringing in these almost like micro moments and opportunities for, um, movement and, and also just kind of healthy human functioning. And for me, I found that I really enjoy listening to podcasts. One of the reasons that I, I host the podcast and we bought like a mini trampoline that we have in the garden and we've got some rings, both of which are super cheap. And I've been trying to actually this morning while I was um, kind of researching this conversation, every 20 minutes I go outside, jump on the trampoline, get some sunlight, hang from the rings, do some stretching together down here, kind of dance a little bit outside and try and kind of weave in these like micro breaks into our day as opposed to like you say kind of just have like the the hour designated gym and and i i enjoy the gym and i enjoy that as well but we have been trying to find a way of like blending our routines so that it doesn't feel like this thing that we have to do but almost like like how can i play in these like five minute breaks in between 
the work that I'm doing. And then I find that my work is actually better as well. And I feel more creative and more productive. And, yes. And all these it things. does boost the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, brain, uh, neurogenesis, brain derived, um, uh, neurotropic factor or something like that. Anyways, it's, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's basically, uh, growth hormone for the brain. It's, uh, that's what movement triggers. So when you move, it keeps your brain uh, healthy because it boosts, it boosts the, the growth of new cells, hmm. new neurons. And it makes sense because when you understand the evolution of, um, well, of the brain, of the evolutionarily speaking or biological speaking, we have a, a brain because we move. Plants don't have a brain. It doesn't mean that they don't have consciousness. Hmm. It only means that they do not need a brain because they do not need to navigate their body through environments that they that they don't know. Hmm. Um, to be able to move through the environment, basically you need to be a, a fortune teller somehow. You need to be able to <laughs> anticipate hmm. what's going to be my next move so that I go where I need to go, where I want to go in a safe way without stumbling, without falling, without hurting myself. Well, it's, it's an incredible amount of computing, mm. biological computing that your brain needs to do in order to place your limbs in the right place at the right time with the right angle, with the right pressure and force and all of that. Mm. The brain does that. Plants, trees don't need to do that. That's why they don't have a brain. So understanding that, that foundation, it makes sense that if you use your body the way it's meant to, which is adaptable movement, movement that adapts to environmental variables and demands, Mm. your brain is the one that makes that happen before your body does body does not move on its own. So it's the brain, the nervous system that's going to achieve that, to mm-hmm. ensure that. It makes sense that if it's its primary reason to be, biological, biologically speaking, that this practice, this activity is going to keep the brain at the highest level of cognition possible or mm-hmm. health possible, which cognition, which uh, cognitive power will be applicable to any other other tasks of the modern world that did not exist before, like thinking about abstract subjects. Hmm. I just so we've, th- had, we've had movement, thinking alone, um, it is not uh, optimum hmm. to maintain brain health, even hmm. if you think positively, even though most people have a number of moments of, you know, mental activity that will not be that positive and ultimately that can impact your brain negatively as well. But uh, what's for sure is that if you have that movement and that movement is outside on, on diverse environments and outside in the sun and outside grounding all around, this is going to maintain your brain to be healthier, sharper than if you just, uh, you know, strain your mind with a lot of thinking all day 
that won't necessarily make you more, uh, you know, sharper mm-hmm. or, um, you know, smarter or uh, happier. As a matter of fact, it might do the opposite because it's going to be really straining. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, what came to mind as you were sharing that was I had a conversation in, in Sumba with a Waldorf uh, head teacher. And she was saying how some of the the principles they 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 teach by are they have students use specific movements with different words, and so when they when they're giving a presentation, it's almost like a movement. It's almost like expressive dance in a way, and they they connect the language with these different movement practices, which I thought was fascinating. And it is smart, yeah. And it, and it seems like that really does assist with their mm-hmm. cognitive function, and and yeah. I think it it does help to kind of um like tackle this myth that we do have this like the the brain and the body or the head and the body or the mind and the body and that actually they're far less separate they are not than, separated so yeah. basically they're working uh, in a very uh, in a smart way on associative state where they um because again uh, for instance dancing uh, even if you're not dancing but you think of dancing you start to activate the part of your brain that would make you dance regardless of the way you're going to dance mm-hmm. Uh, when you think of dancing, um, somehow you start to it start to change your mood already. Like, yeah, I could dance, and you're gonna dance the way you like to dance. Mm. Um, so if you not you start to to associate that with a specific activity, such as a presentation, that's gonna give you first off uh, the, the maybe the looseness or the the, uh, the rhythm and the relaxation that you need in your speech to not be boring, like you're speaking like a robot or stiff and uh, kind of just blocked and uh, limited to your mental mind. You're going to associate your mindset, not with parts of your body, because again, the body dance, but the body is made to dance by the brain. So you're going to associate that part of your brain in the prefrontal cortex that uh, is the one that thinks rationally, that handles clear, effective speech to a part of your brain that's more in the limbic brain, more emotional, which is dancing, you're going to create a connection between those two. And that's going to change your speech. And you can apply that with other activities that you may have to do. Basically, you are training. Hmm. It's a form of mental programmation, pro- programming where you hmm. are um, creating new neural pathways that are more effective, more conducing to the kind of outcome that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. by not just having one mindset for one task, but associating a, an extra mindset, just, just the, the mindset of dancing, which is normally a happy mood, a happy mm-hmm. and relaxed, and to an activity that is very rational, like a, a lecture, a presentation that tends to stiffen us, mm-hmm. stiffen us physically, including the vocal cords and the way we talk because it it's going to impact other areas of the brain. So it's, I love that kind of work and it's, um, it's very bright and indeed, um, no, it's not just in the brain, but it's also, you want to think of different parts of the brain, different areas of the brain. So when you associate, uh, for instance, speech and dance it's not like oh the brain and then the body no it's the brain Mm. two areas of the brain 
one that handles a physical activity and the other one that handles speech, which is also a physical activity, but that's limited to your ribcage, throat, uh, lungs, pharynx, larynx, nasal cavities, tongue, all of that. It feels less physical. It feels like it's almost non-physical. Mm. Trust me, it absolutely <laughs> is physical. And if it wasn't, then there would be no reason why, for instance, having anxiety would impact your speech. So clearly, um, everything is related and everything is interconnected. There's no separation mm. indeed between um, the mind and the body. So it's all neurophysiological or psychophysical, psychophysiological. Yeah. So that's a, I think that's a great segue or connection to what I'm really excited to talk to you about, which is breath work and, and breath holding. And yeah, there's so many things that I want to ask you, but, but maybe just to begin with, could you share how you, like, how did you discover um, this world of breath holding, apnea, free diving? Like what kind of uh, got you hooked in the first place? And then we'll kind of dive into the specifics. Uh, so, uh well, every I've, I believe every kid has played holding breath the longest. I did it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Also had episodes of panicking because my older brother would, you know, Hold, just press a big pillow on me. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, once because I swam in a place that was too deep and I started to panic. And uh, fortunately, somebody saved me. But. Uh, mm. uh, and um, my grandpa mentioned that once he was training his breath holding, just putting his his face on a in a bucket full of water. Uh, I remember being a kid uh, swimming underwater and swimming under my my dad's legs, through you know, and um, or trying to swim as fast as possible or as long as possible underwater, things like that, uh, things you do instinctively as a kid. Mm -hmm. I remember being a young teenager with my older brothers and uh, on vacation and uh, by a little natural pool and uh, we would challenge each other. And I think that I, I did like two minutes, 30 something. And that was the longest of all three of us. I was very proud because <laughs> uh, younger brother, you know, hmm. um, when in my mid thirties, I trained, uh, triathlon and long distance triathlon i would often finish the the swim sessions at the swimming pool by doing 25 meters or more underwater mm -hmm. until i was told to not do that because it was a liability <laughs> i was really frustrated because i love to do that mm. um and then i got interested i got into spearfishing mm. awesome and, um, wait, so before spearfishing, yes, when I stopped training triathlon, I, I had a, an intuitive, uh, interest in breath holding and uh, I did it all the wrong way, hmm. which means I would try to do a maximum breath hold every day. Um, I did intuitively hyperventilation. So that's mm. long before, mm -hmm. Uh, Wim Hof uh, started to become popular, which is great. Uh, uh, he helped a, a lot of people be aware of their breathing and the potential that breath holding holds for, for health. Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, beyond yoga alone. So that's that's wonderful. Uh, but uh, I would I just discovered intuitively that if I was to hyperventilate, it would help me hold my breath a little longer. And I think that I did. I ended up being able to do four minutes thirty, four minutes thirty, almost five or forty-five, something like that after several repetitions. Mm. But that was very, very hard. I did not understand. There was no method. There was no mm. guidance. So for me, it was just pure will. I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to hold my breath longer is if I just have the will to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, maybe 13 years ago. Um so it's always been there. I've always been interested. But three years ago, I was in Mexico and I was doing spearfishing regularly and I wanted to improve my bottom time. So mm-hmm. bottom time is how long you can stay just lying down at the bottom, waiting for fish to come closer. Because spearfishing is not... you. You use your fin and you try to basically go after a fish that you see and try to spear them. That doesn't work like that, okay? The fish is too smart and fast. It just goes away fast and disappears or disappears in in rocks and stuff like that. What kills the fish is their curiosity. Hmm. So you have to be completely still and patient enough. Fish know that you're there. They heard you, they felt you, they maybe saw you, maybe smelled you, I don't know. They detect you. The only way that you're going to have the fish to get close enough so that you can trigger your your harpoon and spear them is if they come close enough. They will come close if they you make them believe that you are just like a rock, just not moving. You fell there and now you're there. And they're like, whoa, who are you? What, what is this? Okay. So in order to be able to do that, you need to not only hold your breath, swim down, but then hold your breath in a completely still fashion. And when you add to that some depth, you need some. You need to go deep enough, typically, where the water is colder, where more fish is there because it's colder. There's more rocks, more holes, more... So you need to really have a, a mind of steel and you also need mm. to have a physiological ability to hold your breath, which back then I thought was just a physiological ability mm. before I realized that it was not just physiological. It was actually mostly neurological. Mm. So I started to, uh, to train what's called dry. I started to train my breath all in. On, on the beach, uh, walking, stopping, holding my breath and walking back, imagining that I would go down, hold my breath and, and look at the time and try to hold my, my breath longer. Um, and, and little by little, I, I really investigated that field where there's, in fact, very little information about it uh, out there. Hmm. And I started to, to learn that craft and to understand what was going on and start to understand that uh, the, the limiting factor was always going to be my mind. Every time my mind 
was not in the right place, I couldn't blame my body and be like, what's up with my body today? You know, physiologically, something is different. No, obviously it was my mind. And so it would make you wonder, why is my mind not the same today? Why is it more agitated? Mm. Why is it more impatient? Why is it not doing as well as yesterday? Did I change anything? No. So what's the difference? And that's when you start to really investigate how the mind works. Mm. Mm. yeah because again it's just like movement the body doesn't move on its own there's a brain and from that brain from within that brain stems an intention that intention is what triggers movement movement Mm. to that is explosive movement that is fluid movement that is a certain way a a dancing movement Mm. A fighting movement, a power movement, a jumping movement. Like, what's the movement? Well, it depends on what the intention is. The body alone does not trigger that that movement because it does not have an intention of its own. Only the mind does that. The Mm. mind, and what's the mind? It's the brain, it's the nervous system, it's all of that. And in breath-folding, that it is dynamic means you could be moving or that it is static means you do not move. It's exactly the same. Isn't it your mind that decides I'm going to hold my breath now? Yes. Otherwise you would keep breathing. Autonomic nervous system. You could be busy doing something completely different. You Hmm. never stop breathing. Why? Because there's a part of your nervous system that takes care of it for you. So that your conscious mind doesn't have to take care of everything. Your conscious mind doesn't have to take care of digesting, um, of uh, of uh, uh, replacing cells, uh, creating new cells, recycling old cells, uh, breathing, and all all these aspects of the metabolism. You don't have to take care of it consciously. It's taken mm. care of it. by what. Not what you call your mind, but certainly what you call your nervous system and brain. It regulates all of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you hold your breath, it's an intention. And the way you're going to hold your breath and how long you're going to breath, hold your breath is also an intention. Are there going to be physiological uh, processes involved? Well, obviously, but it's just like when you run or when you do any form of exercise. For instance, you want to run at a certain speed for a certain distance, and then you start to be tired, and it's too fast or too long, and you regret that you made the decision. You're like, oh, I should have chosen a 5K. What did I say? I would run that 10K no matter what. And now I just want to stop after three kilometers already. Mm. Yes? Or uh, I have to run that distance in that time, and I said, no slower than that. And now all I want to do is to slow down. My body doesn't feel good. My mind doesn't feel good. Well, now you want to change your intention. You see, like, are there physiological things that are happening in your in your body that makes your nervous system and, and brain and mind react differently? Yes, but ultimately... It is your intention that regulates everything, that regulates your experience and Mm. regulates what you're doing. Okay, so so I... 
Yeah. So, so you have you have to be in charge mm. of your mind to be able to hold your breath for a long time. Because by default, everyone's response to a breath hold by default is negative. Physical agitation, emotional agitation, and mental agitation. But not the kind of joyful, I'm so happy, I'm holding my breath, I'm so happy, I want to jump and declare my joy to the world. No, it's like, uh, get me out of here right now. Hmm. I know I said I would do two minutes no matter what because I'm a samurai. And then I'm like, nah, nah, not really, no, I'm, I'm going to watch the movie The Last Samurai, but I'm not going to hold my breath longer. You understand? There's a difference. Yeah, so um, it's... Um, you have to meditate. You must meditate. So, so that's that's probably a good. Um, uh, what what I wanted to share and maybe talk about is this relationship between um, having a strong intention versus like forcing yourself to. Um, hold your breath for a long time. And, and, and the way that I think about, I also love freediving and spearfishing myself. And my experience of it is it's very much like a bi-directional relationship. And there's a large part of freediving for me that is as much of like listening to my body and tuning into the sensations that are there and then almost like subtly relaxing. And I, I like to think about it as it's like cultivating the conditions for deep peace and relaxation, but I'm not doing the relaxing. It's like, what are the things, whether it's like triangular breathing or humming or blowing bubbles on the surface that create or cultivate that more meditative state in which the, uh, there is that capacity to dive down to 40 meters or, or whatever that looks like. Um, and so, so I guess the question is, what are some of the things that you do say at the surface to cultivate the conditions for that, for that calm, for that eight minute breath hold, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and how do you think about the difference between having a, like a firm intention and a strong desire, but not actually grasping or trying? Cause in my experience is that when I like try to hold my breath for, let's say seven, like six or seven minutes, it's not as effective as when I just like surrender and soften and then kind of allow mm -hmm. that to almost happen. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you think about that? Well, so you were making a difference between intention and then um, forcing oneself. Mm -hmm. Well, forcing oneself is an intention mm. and relaxing is an intention. Which intention do you choose? Yeah, there's, there's, there is a difference in my mind between setting the intention to relax, but then setting the intention to relax and also not get up <laughs> once my head's underwater. Yes. yes. So you have to understand the nature of intention also. Mm -hmm. Typically, we think of intention as making one decision and then that's it, we're set. I said I would relax. So, and I felt relaxed before my breath hold. Now I'm holding my breath. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you don't feel relaxed no more. And like, why? I decided that I would be relaxed. That was my intention. It was, I was very clear, intentional about my intention. 
Yeah, I was intentional about my intention. Well, here's the thing. It's not a New Year's resolution, brother. <laughs> you know, everybody has their New Year's resolution and uh, they don't last a whole year, do they? They last sometimes not even a, a month. Sometimes not even a week. But there were resolutions, like you were resolved. And now it's gone. Ah, uh, whatever. I'll go to the gym next month. First next, to, I'll go tomorrow. Then I'll go next week. I'll go, I'll go next month. And they're like, oh no, six months later. Yeah, I paid for the whole yearly membership and I only went three times this year around. Well, I'll wait for the next resolution. Okay. So that resolution was never really a resolution. You were not resolved. There was no power to that decision you made. It was just a decision that may have felt powerful in the moment you made it, but that proof fell to its power. Just was weak. Okay. Why? Well, because you don't have self-discipline or because you're not truly driven and motivated to actually go to the gym for whatever outcome that you expect from it. So how does that relate to how you are going to behave in a prolonged breathhold? Well, it's exactly the same. You may start with a strong intention, and that strong intention may not even be that you are going to fight to the death. No, that strong intention could be, I am perfectly centered, I am still... I found my inner self in a place of complete peace and surrender, and I will hold that space all the way to until I resume breathing three minutes later. And you expect that that's going to be your fortune-telling you know, prediction. And it's going to happen that way because you programmed yourself that way. Yeah, but problem is after 30 seconds, you already start to feel agitated. And all your good resolution of of relaxation, surrender. It's not there anymore already. Okay, so because an intention is not just making a decision once and then thinking that out of that decision that was made, you're then on autopilot and you have nothing else to do. The intention is and must be sustained. It must prolong itself. You must, as the mind, you are the mind who makes the decision. You are the mind who chooses that specific intention. Well, that mind now is in charge of making it happen. There's no autopilot. You have to sustain that intention. What does that require? a high level of alertness because you have to be conscious of the subtle changes of your mind. And who is your mind, by the way? You are your mind. So the mind that you are has to be aware of changes, subtle cues that indicate, oh, okay, I now tend to want to agitate. Basically, I am drifting away from my original intention. I'm not in the zone where I said I would stay. That's it. And that's all it is. If you don't have 
a developed ability to sustain your intention, then you will shift for another intention the same way when we are not meditating. And sometimes when we are meditating, we may shift from one thought to the next. Why? Well, because maybe we told ourselves, it's okay, I'm just observing my thoughts with detachment. Okay, well, good. So you're like uh, going to the movies and you're just uh, watching the show and uh, you are the one who make your own thoughts change and then you're the one who will also observe your thoughts change, but you're not redoing really any work, just observing. Okay, cool. Or you say, no, I'm only focusing on no thought or one single thought, single thought, like a mantra, like a one thought that comes back all the time. And every time you stray away from that thought, then you know that somehow, well, that's not the intention that you had set. And you had set an intention, and therefore your discipline's not go away from that intention. Hmm. It's not depart from it. It's to ensure that there is replicability, there is consistency, consistent. So in a breath hold, you're placing yourself in a state of neurophysiological stress right away that's unlike any other meditation because typically a meditation one you avoid any stress so the place where you are is silent or there's a little calm music little bells maybe some incense maybe some flowers orchids like beauty beauty so that it doesn't look stressful right you don't have a a poster of a you know zombie apocalypse on the wall that you stare at. Excuse me, you're meditating. If you're going to look at something, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be relaxing. You want peacefulness. So you avoid any stress by creating an environment when there is no stress, number one. Number two, you will use breathing, not hyperventilation, but slow breathing to quiet your nervous system, to support the ability of your nervous system to quiet itself. Yes? Now, in a breath hold, one, you create a stress that's internal because when you stop ventilation, that's a stress. Instantly. Your nervous system detects that ventilation has been paused and there's no indication that's going to resume any time. It, does, it can't possibly know what your prefrontal cortex is thinking. It doesn't know. There's no line of communication between the two. So it can only assume that basically that could be prolonged to the point where, well, if we keep doing that, that's going to kill us all in there. So it's a laugh threat. That's a serious kind of threat. It's not like, oh, something is itching. That could be threatening, but that's not life threatening. But... No oxygen, no oxygen supply anymore. Now that's a serious threat. So number one, you're in a state of stress. Self-induced, but stress nonetheless. Number two, you can't regulate through your breathing. So how do you meditate through that? Is it even possible to meditate through that? It's absolutely possible, but you have to learn new tools. That's what I teach. I say new tools because even a veteran uh, uh, meditator, somebody who's 
been meditating for a long time, who is able to establish that stillness and centeredness, which are beautiful, but while breathing, while slow breathing in a still position in a beautiful environment or at least a peaceful, calm environment, quiet environment. Does that mean that they can hold their breath for a long time? No, not at all. Their stillness, their centeredness or their positivity and their clarity, they'll, they'll go, they'll, they'll dissolve quickly like that, like they'll collapse. <laughs> They'll get agitated like anyone else. So why is that? Well, because their nervous system is undergoing what's, what it perceives as a life threat. And just like any other living creature, animal creature, you get agitated because you think that if you prolong that state, you will die. You will die. It's not like, oh, not to worry, I'll hold my breath, but I know that I'm going to breathe. Yes, that's what you know consciously. But the deeper layer of your mind, of your brain, of your nervous system, have no clue what the conscious, like the superior mind is doing. And it's like that guy who's like the, the head honcho, like, the guy who thinks he knows it all, the knows it all guy up there is maybe going to like really screw us all. We're, we're done. If this <laughs> keeps going within a few minutes, we're all done in there. We need to do something about it. Hmm. And that's not meditation. Agitate, agitate, oh, move, move, become emotional, become negative, start to think about a way out. That's what happens. So that's probably a, a really good, um, I, I, what I'm imagining listeners, they're probably kind of enjoying these stories, but it might seem quite abstract and hypothetical. And a lot of people listening might be like, well, I'm not going to go spearfishing. So why would I need to train my breath hold? <laughs> yes. um, and, and, and so what I'd like to kind of double click on or, or highlight for people are, um, the benefits not only to let's say increasing your co2 tolerance levels for stress levels and anxiety for the kind of increasing your um your your capacity as well to tolerate stress in other environments like could you speak yeah. to some of the the benefits that this quite like niche and obscure practice might, might excellent have, yeah. point and excellent question so let's talk about health to begin with uh when you are um you're exposing your own nervous system and whole physiology to what's called a, what's an hypoxic stress. Okay. So you say, well, CO2 tolerance, the elevation of, of CO2 is just the, the, uh, the forerunner, like the, the, um, lead, lead dominant. Yeah. The, the, the tail sign, forgive my, forgive my French. Sometimes I'm not sure which term to use of, okay. an hypoxic problem. Hypoxic means lack of oxygen. Okay, lack of oxygen obviously can shut off the heart and brain and you die. Okay, that's extreme. That would be if you were to hold your breath an extremely long 
long time and be basically forced to lose consciousness. That's never going to happen. I've come close. But, <laughs> yes, because we want, we, we, we love life. We enjoy life. We want, actually, it's, it's, it's about life. It's about living a, a better life. It's actually about being healthier. But when you expose by frequent breath holding, even though you will not even reach a hypoxic state, you will just reach what's called a hypercapnic state, which is an elevated level of CO2, which cannot be exhaled because you're holding your breath, so it accumulates in your blood, in your tissues, in your lung. And that creates a stress already that typically already warns the nervous system that, hey, if this keeps going, that clearly we have too much CO2, not because we're running around, but because we're not exhaling. If we're not exhaling, we're also not inhaling. Therefore, we're not ventilating. If we're not ventilating, we, we will at some point like oxygen. Now that's a threat, right? So... It, but it doesn't matter. What's going to do, it's not just going to increase CO2 tolerance, which in itself is, is excellent. Um, it's going to make the brain better at oxygenating itself. Mm-hmm. It's going to improve what's called cerebral blood flow. Cerebral blood flow is going to get stronger. Mm-hmm. So who doesn't want better oxygenation of the brain? It's you know, uh, it's typically it's a, a lack of oxygenation. You know, cellular oxygenation is deficient. That's the case in many people because of breathing issues. The way they breathe, not because they mm-hmm. don't breathe enough, but because they breathe too much through the mouth. Yep. Um, and so, um, if uh, the tissues are not properly oxygenated, that's not just your muscles and skin and organs. That's, I mean, the brain is an organ. Um, so it. It is going to boost brain oxygenation. So that's a wonderful uh, health uh, gain right there. Mm. Now, you're talking about CO2 tolerance because indeed, when you hold your breath, CO2 accumulates. It has nowhere to go since you're not exhaling anymore. It feels like a burn because it's called blood acidosis. Blood becomes more acidic and that feels like a burn and it irritates your, your nervous system. That's why you agitate. That's why you want to breathe again. Are you just training CO2 tolerance? No, you're training tolerance, just Mm. tolerance. Mm. And what is tolerance? How do you tolerate? With just your your mind, I tolerate. How do you know you tolerate? Because I say so, I want to, I have willpower to tolerate. No, typically, how do you know you're tolerant? Because you stay relaxed. Mm. Because you trust. And you're patient. Okay. Well, what you're going to train for breath holding is emotional tolerance. You'll be able to remain composed and confident and optimistic. And by the way, you asked me, how did I feel today? First question, I said composed, confident, and optimistic. You're going to remain composed, confident, and optimistic emotionally, not just mentally. Because if you say, I'm confident, I'm composed, I'm optimistic. Well, yeah, that's good, good, you know, Kue method, you know, affirmation thing. But that's just in your mind. That's what you're trying to make yourself believe you are. That's not how your emotional self feels, does it? No. So emotional resiliency has everything to do with emotional tolerance. So something 
when I say something, an experience such as prolonged breath holding that is going to trigger your emotional instability, your emotional negativity, your emotional agitation. And when you mindfully practice the antidote, which is downregulate, stay composed, stay patient, and not just with words that you repeat like a mantra in your mind, but actually feeling it, mm -hmm. your emotional self. So emotional self, is it in the heart? Yeah, it's in part in the heart, but it's also mostly in the limbic brain, mm -hmm. animal brain. It's the one that can throw a tantrum and be like, get me out of here. Or kids say, I want that toy. Or, mm -hmm. And then, if, or when we get upset because we can all at some point become upset. And when we do, what happens? We can't think right because we're emotional. We're upset. So what takes over another part of a brain? That's the limbic brain. The limbic brain is in a dysregulated function or mode where it's dysregulated because the way it knows how to reflexively regulate mm -hmm. is not the most efficient. It's a negative one. So since you're a student of the nervous system, uh, you'll find those insights, uh, I believe, pretty interesting. Mm. And so you have to learn, you have to teach yourself. And when you say you, again, this nervous system has to teach itself mm -hmm. how to regulate better. By being mindful, by being intentional, that kind of sustained intentionality I was talking about, mm -hmm. to create new neural pathways that are going to be a substitute to the, the built-in, you know, like the, the factory settings, which is, oh, I'm emotional. This is going to kill me. Get me out of here. I don't want to do this. It's horrible. I hate it. I hate to hold my breath. Into, be patient. Trust, mm -hmm. compose your mind, yep. de-agitate and keep de-agitating and resist buying into the agitation, resist buying into the panic, into the negativity. So you're learning a skill right there. Very, It, it feels that it's an intangible skill, but it's an, an emotional skill of emotional tolerance and resiliency. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of what you were saying at the beginning around like going to a dojo and learning a martial art. This to me and my experience of this is is like learning the martial art of emotional resiliency and free diving or breath holding is almost the, the dojo and the training ground where we can yeah. develop this capacity. And the other thing that I wanted to point out for listeners as well is the there's a pretty strong connection between our CO2 tolerance and our tendencies for going into anxiety. So for people that do suffer from anxiety or emotional dysregulation, training your CO2 tolerance is actually one of the, the most effective kind of practices that you can engage with. Yes. But again, Johnny, not because it's CO2 tolerance, but because it's tolerance. Mm, that's like a you're proxy using, for, you're using, yeah. You're using uh, the, the, the intolerance to CO2 yeah. to build your tolerance, which is tolerance. It's just tolerance. If you can tolerance uh, CO2, it's tolerance. It means your nervous system and your mm. emotional self will become more tolerance, tolerant to, to tolerating other things. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. It's the yeah. principles of martial arts. You, know, you, you spar at the beginning, you're a beginner, and you become nervous. Maybe you become angry or uh, you want to cry or something because you become all nervous and you don't understand why. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's because you become emotional. Your mind starts to regress down into the limbic brain and then emotion overwhelm you. Martial arts teach you to become more emotionally resilient. And that typically applies to other situations of life that are not martial arts. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same with breath holding, except that when you do breath holding, you don't have to spar with someone. It's you and you. It's mm-hmm. completely within. You can't blame anything. You can't say, you went too hard on yeah. me. Yeah. You can say, well, maybe I went too hard on myself. And that's, that's also part of how you approach your nervous system. How do you teach your nervous system? You have mm. to understand that it's a cooperation between what you want and how to acquire what you want. So it's uh, you need to learn how to teach yourself. The nervous system learns a way to teach itself how to behave differently. This is what I teach with my breathful work method. Because without that meditation, without that understanding, you're just left with just willpower if you have it, trying to hold your breath for as long as you can. And then you do that three times and then you're like, okay, I'm done. That's horrible. I hate it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I gained 20 seconds. Big deal. The sensations were so horrible that mm-hmm. I don't want to do this anymore. You haven't mm-hmm. learned anything. You've missed on a great opportunity mm-hmm. to learn grandiously and deeply about yourself, mm-hmm. your inner workings. Yeah, that's very well said. Yeah, I, I really resonate with that. Um, and, oh, I, I want to add this, Johnny. Respiratory rate. So respiratory rate is something very reflexive. We talk mm-hmm. about, you know, a reflexive pattern. Mm-hmm. How do you change that? It's difficult because even when you're going to do, a, I don't know, 10 minutes slow breathing every day, that doesn't mean that the rest of the time you're going to breathe that slow. Why? Because a few minutes of conscious thinking and manipulation of something that deeply ingrained, that reflexive as breathing and respiratory rate is not going to cut it, not going to work, in my opinion and in my observation. All of my students have noticed um, a tremendous lowering of the respiratory rate so what but that means and you you know that but just for your some of your followers may not know it's the number of breath cycles a breath cycle being one inhale and one exhale number of breath cycles that you take per minute at rest when you sit like this for instance you're not talking well that respiratory rate is significantly decreased not by doing breathing exercises, but by doing breath-holding exercises. So you will, through the practice of breath-hold work, you will end up seeing your respiratory rate go down. So mm-hmm. even when you're not thinking about it, you breathe slower. And pretty much everyone knows that breathing slowly is a good indication of the health of a nervous system, of a nervous system that is tranquil, that's not agitated, whereas when we breathe faster, obviously that means typically we're going through some events where 
we're agitated, we're, we have anxiety, we're angry, we're upset, something preoccupies us, mm-hmm. or we're, we have sickness, something not so positive. So, oppositely, breathing slower means we're relaxed, we're cool, we're good, we're in a good place. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thank you for, for adding that. And for listeners who might be curious to measure um, things like the aura ring can track your um respiratory rate and i know from myself um both myself and students i've worked with they've gone from kind of having 16 17 breaths per minute down to kind of 10 to 11 with fairly consistent breath hold practice and you can practice breath holding whether you're like walking around you can kind of tape your mouth when you're working out i've been trying i've been trying to row here whilst nose breathing and it's it's challenging (laughs) absolutely and there is no doubt that breathing alone breathing exercises will help with that yeah my observation is that breath holding and the breath holding meditation we're not talking about like the like savage brutal kind of breath holding we're talking about breath hold work meditation mm-hmm. will achieve that lower respiratory rate faster more efficiently than just breathing alone yeah. and obviously there are other aspects of lifestyle that play a part in our respiratory rate mm-hmm. there's also how sleep uh well we sleep and things like that obviously mm-hmm. um our relationships you know if we're in love we're happy if we're, we have a good um support system around us and if we're part of community all kind of thing mm-hmm. um it does or just health just being healthy eating healthier all of that um, will impact metabolism will impact nervous system will impact mm. respiratory rate amazing but so yeah if you if you learn to become confident staying substantial amounts of time without ventilation mm-hmm. your nervous system will understand that oh okay well after all there's maybe not that much of a need to breathe that often unless we would be walking or physically active but when we're not your co2 tolerance is much higher but your tolerance is higher nervous system is again more tranquil Mm -hmm. and so it positively impacts positively impacts the breathing rate Awesome. Awesome. So, um, wow, there's, there's a ton of questions that I had written down that I, I wanted to ask you about. Um, but the one, if you don't know two, then I guess. yeah, we'll have to do another My battery is um, about to die actually. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the one, the one thing that I wanted to briefly touch on just out of personal curiosity is I, I saw on Twitter that some of your students, um, reported like experiencing mystical ex- states. And I know for myself, I've had deep kind of ecstatic joy and bliss through breath holding. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering briefly, like, do you have any, any theories as to why that, why that is? Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, there is a point where, um, so it's, it, it's about cerebral oxygenation. So the brain weighs 2% of our body mass, but, and that's an average, right? Um, some people are smarter, so they have a heavier brain. Just kidding. Um, but more seriously, the brain is maybe, uh, I believe something like 2%, maybe 5% at most, um, mm. uh, proportionally of our body mass, entire mm. body mass, but uses on average 20% of all oxygen that we breathe. 
And so that means that the brain is highly, it consumes proportionally. It's the most consuming of oxygen, which makes sense. It's our super biological computer. Mm-hmm. Now, the brain is not using oxygen everywhere all the time the same. It depends on your activity. There are different regions of the brain that handle specific tasks like movement, cerebellum, thinking, peripheral cortex, and those are generalizations, but it's pretty much the way it works. So we're not oxy- the brain is not oxygenating itself because it's the brain that controls that, right? The, the brain controls the way it oxygenates itself, okay? It's a living being. It's a living, it's a conscious entity. So the amount of oxygen and where it goes varies depending on the day and the activity. When you hold your breath, it's not your thinking that's going to be the most important at some point. And so ultimately, when the brain senses that oxygen is going to be lacking, it has to direct the amount of oxygen that's still available to specific places that are most important. So the same way when you hold your breath at some point, it's prolonged enough. Well, not all blood flow and and oxygen goes everywhere the same. Mm -hmm. Oxygen is going to go to the two main, to the most noble organs, which are your heart, if your heart stops pumping, you're dead, and your brain. If your brain shuts off, you're dead. So brain and heart are going to receive the most oxygen, obviously. But the brain is not going to receive the same amount of oxygen everywhere. So it's going to have to be a little more uh, discriminating where it sends the oxygen. So there's a point where thinking is not what actually matters the most. And in preparation of when you will reach the point where there is not enough oxygen to ensure all functions that the brain normally ensures, basically there's a point where the brain will have to make the decision of shutting down consciousness. It will make itself full unconscious. That doesn't mean it's dead. It means it's like, okay, we're going to stop thinking and we're going to fall unconscious so we stop moving so that there's no more unnecessary consumption of oxygen. And we're going to wait until there is ventilation again and m- supply of fresh new oxygen so we can be revived. And then we, like all parts of the brain, all parts of the body, and we can live. Until then, it's complete survival mode. So the prefrontal cortex, the one that thinks, is at some point going to receive less oxygen and that oxygen is going to go in the deeper part of the brain, such as the limbic brain mm-hmm. and the brainstem. So midbrain, brainstem. So there's that because there are actually more, uh, I mean, the survival functions are all, all in the brainstem, okay? That's where the respiratory centers are and everything. So if these parts are not oxygenating. Mm-hmm. They cannot regulate nothing. It doesn't matter if you think. They do their own form of thinking. It's their own form of executive power, okay? Mm-hmm. Executive function. Um, also because that limbic brain, that emotional self of ours, is extremely irritated. Lots of friction in there. 
it's like, oh my God, 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 oh my God. But at the same time, it's also trying for survival reasons to quiet itself, to not burn oxygen unnecessarily. And so you're basically delving into a, a dreamlike state of mind. Mm. And this is when visions arise. Another intuition I have, because again, no science uh, could uh, explain that. I mean, I'm not saying that it could not one day. I'm not saying that at this point we can't possibly know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have a near-death experiences, people who then they saw their whole life or they had uh, those encounterings with uh, entities or, or they had this dream and those revelations and things. We are... Well, consciousness stems from the brain. As a matter of fact, no oxygen, no brain function, no consciousness. That's when consciousness stops. So we are, but we're probably, aren't we souls? Who doesn't want to be a soul instead of just like some kind of biological device? In any case, we have a story, we have an identity, we have a sense of self, we have a sense of purpose, of agenda, of meaning, of who we are, what we're here for. What do you think happens when your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system, senses that your levels of oxygen get so low that those could be your last moments? What matters? At this point, what is relevant to your consciousness? Oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to die? Maybe. Or, well, I'm processing reality different now. And my conscious screens are gone. They're irrelevant. I'm on my own. I mean, I'm with myself, within myself. I don't have to interact with the world. I'm not talking to anyone. I don't have a, a problem to solve. I don't have responsibilities or anything like that. I'm, I'm in a free space of my mind that where I delve much deeper. And um, it's, it's intensely philosophical. Mm-hmm. It's uh, intensely psychological. And yep. it's, it, it's intensely spiritual. And yep. when it gets spiritually in, spiritual, because again, remember, your levels of oxygen are depleted. Your consciousness could stop within a minute or less or more, but mm-hmm. so your brain is necessarily going to function completely different and your consciousness is necessarily going to be altered. Yeah, totally. Your brain waves are different. You're delving deeper into into you know, Gam- different gamma and brain. delta. Yep. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's the reason. That's the reason. It's a spiritual experience because you are you are nearing your physiological limits. The physiological limits that define the the boundary between life and death between consciousness and no consciousness mm-hmm. and that's oxygen yep yep and, and and from what i've 
read as well. I, I think there is a a case to be made that DMT is often released um, in these moments of kind of near near death experiences. Um, but it is I, it is very it is very possible. I, I don't <laughs> like to talk about DMT in this yeah. uh, in relation to breathing because there is. I mean, I've heard so many like woo woo. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's salads, a, it, and I do not buy anything <laughs> at all one yeah. bit. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, when it comes to psychedelic uh, journeys, mm -hmm. I have several hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. Psychedelics experiences, mm -hmm. so I know very well how to navigate those worlds. Mm. Um, could that be that uh, you reach a point where you are endogenously, so internally producing DMT? Mm -hmm. Possibly, but I wouldn't say, hey, you know what, do breathfolding because you're going to have a trip. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. do breathfolding uh, because I'm, I'm you're going to you. learn emotional resiliency. You're going to really learn to stabilize yeah. your emotional self, it's going to give you mental clarity. That's the most important. And then it's going to also get to lower your respiratory rate and Beautiful. better oxygen in your brain. So those are the main benefits. And yeah, it is a meditation that is very unique. That's much more challenging than a, a meditation where you can breathe and you have no stress. But mm -hmm. that's the point. Mm -hmm. You create stress so that you can better learn how to manage that stress. Awesome. It's well, a healthy kind of stress. That's a great, um, yeah, I, I guess a, a final segue into where can listeners find out more about your work and your, and your breath hold program? What's the best place to direct them to? It would be on breathholdwork.com. Mm -hmm. So breath, everybody knows about breath work. Uh, breath hold work teaches you breath work. Mm -hmm. We teach breath work. I teach breath work. Uh, but then um, it's also breath hold work. So learning to not breathe. So there's the breathing and then there is the no breathing. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And the no breathing is very, very powerful. And so if you know how powerful breathing already is, <laughs> now imagine what no breathing practice is going to bring on the table if you learn to do it, mm -hmm. right? Because again, the same way you don't learn to fight by going in a bar and starting a fight or in the street, you learn in martial arts, you learn techniques. Well, you're not going to learn much if you just try to hold your breath as much as possible. What you will learn is an experience that is very, very unpleasant. But if you learn the tools and those tools are tools of, uh, of meditation, uh, how to think a certain way, how to visualize Understanding your physiology, understanding your neurology, understanding, having a conceptual understanding of how you function, how we all function. Okay, amazing. Well, I will include the links in the show notes and your your books as well. Um, so thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks, it's Johnny. Been it's been my pleasure too. Um, I'd like to close with a, a line from Rilke. And he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And so with that in mind, what is the question that is most alive for you right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? I, um, I don't have a question that's like a burning question to my mind. In fact, 
at the moment is the answer and it's all a mystery. It's all a mystery and I love that mystery. So do we have questions sometimes? Yes. Do we find answers? Absolutely. Um, but uh, I find currently I really find a lot of my answers by holding my breath. Really, that's where it's at for me. Maybe the breath is the question. All right. Well, thank you so much. It, it tells me the truth about who I am in the moment. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. This has been such a pleasure. Take care. Likewise. <laughs> okay. You bye. Take care. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.